Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this glorious day that we have, this beautiful weather, that you've led us all to your house this morning uh, to sing your praises, uh, to gather together uh, for mutual uh, support as brothers and sisters, and to learn from your word. I pray that your spirit would go forth and work on our hearts. Bring what's not in line with you in line with you, uh, that we may receive your full blessing. And Lord, I pray that we would go out from this place as, as was prayed uh, and share your gospel with one more person while we still can. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Detailed by history.com, uh, in December of 1944, the Second World War in the European arena was almost finished, but not quite. It had been six months since the Allied launch into Nazi-occupied France at Normandy. Hitler was now fighting the war on two fronts, the Russians on the east and the Allied forces on the west, with his army stuck in the middle. The war in Europe appeared all but one. But in December of 1944, after having survived a failed assassination attempt, a paranoid Hitler tried one more attempt at turning the tide of the war. On the Western Front, there was a weak spot in the Allied forces lines at a remote region of, of Belgium, called the Ar, uh, Belgium called the Ardennes. In fact, American GIs often called that spot the honeymoon sector, where fresh recruit, recruits could ease into the war and wounded soldiers could recuperate there the honeymoon sector. In December of 1944, there were only four American divisions covering an 89-mile stretch. Two of these divisions had never fired a shot in this war, and two of them were still recovering from a previous battle. And that is where Hitler planned his surprise attack. The Nazi leader believed that if he could punch through that remote spot in the Allied line, he could take the Belgian city of Antwerp, crippling the Allies' supply line to attempt their final push to Berlin. If Hitler was successful, he believed he could renegotiate with the Allied forces, avoid an unconditional surrender on that front, buy himself more time, and turn his focus back towards the east. No one thought Hitler would be foolish enough to go on the offensive with an already worn out and decimated German army. But on December 16, 1944, when a thick fog covered the Ardennes region, grounding Allied air support, Hitler launched his surprise attack. The Nazi army quickly surrounded two regiments of a division in that remote area and initiated the single largest field surrender of Allied forces in the entire war. Within 24 hours, German tanks had broken through the Allied lines in Ardennes, creating an unseemly bulge in the Western Front and initiating one of the most famous battles in World War II, the Battle of the Bulge. You can see there that unseemly bulge that they made right there on the Western Line. Hitler probably would have been successful in his surprise attack and push toward Antwerp if it wasn't for one ingrained characteristic in the American troops that Hitler had not taken into account. 
That ingrained characteristic was the American trait of ingenuity in the face of the impossible. Whereas the German army relied on written orders all the way down to the regimental level, the Americans had an unbelievable amount of grit and ability to improvise in the face of defeat. When I read this, this made me so proud of these courageous American soldiers who did not back down and turn this entire battle around. Instead of remaining caught off guard and doing nothing, these creative and bold American soldiers regrouped and initiated guerrilla-style attacks on the German regiments. One American division, known as the Fighting 30th Engineers, started blowing up all the ways the Nazis could advance north. In fact, there was a town called Trois-Ponts, meaning three points, at which there were three bridges that crossed the river the Germans intended to cross. There was nothing left by the time the Fighting 30th was done with them. In an additional account, a scout named Albert Tarbell, who was full-blooded Mohawk Native American, helped the 82nd Airborne Division trunk track and hunt down the Nazi army in the middle of the woods through knee-deep snow. When the 101st American Airborne Division was pinned down by Nazi infantry at a place called Baston, they survived for five long days on rations and clothing from locals. When the German field commander issued a call for surrender from American General Anthony McAuliffe, he blatantly refused. That division held out long enough for a fresh supply drop, and only a short time later, the famous General George Patton got his giant army turned north and relieved them, turning the tide of the Battle of the Bulge. About a month later, the Allies fully pushed the Nazi army back, smoothed out the bulge in their western front, and started preparing for their march to Berlin. While Hitler did everything he could to strike the Allied forces at their weakest link and was partially successful, he did not take into account how the Americans would regroup and figure out how they could do everything possible to dismantle the German surprise attack. In our passage this morning, however, Jesus presents a couple of parables that illustrate the shock and surprise factor of his future coming. But in this morning's parables, there is no regrouping that anyone can do, nor come back from, nor any, do anything to change anything about this surprise at the point of his surprise coming. And surprisingly, Jesus directs these two parables not to unbelievers, but to his followers. The two parables we'll be talking about this morning and gives them a grave warning about taken by surprise by his imminent return. These are meant to give us a jolt and redirect our focus off of the cares of this world, especially during this current crisis, and push us to do what he wants us to be doing right now in light of looking forward to his coming back for us. We talked last week about how these passages are included in the famous and very controversial Matthew 24 chapter. 
where Jesus gives several teachings and illustrations about end times events. And we spent quite a few minutes last week uh, differentiating the two halves of Matthew 24, where the first half, from verse 4 through 35, is dealing with the seven-year end times tribulational period and the following full second coming of Jesus. At that point, that's the point when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. I'm not going to go into all the detail we did last week, so if you'd like to know more of what I'm talking about, that message is up on our website and podcast platforms. Last week, we talked about how the verses that follow that section, starting in verse 36, the very next verse, have to do with something different than those end times events from verses 4 through 35. Again, if you want more detail, you can watch or listen to last week's message. But in short, when Jesus transitions to verse 36, he's talking about a single day event, a single event that could happen at any moment that precedes everything that happens from verses 4 through 35. This event which the two parables this morning also directly are connected to, is the global event known as the rapture. Like we talked about last week, this will be a worldwide event that comes completely out of nowhere. It will be when Jesus partially returns out of heaven without fully returning to earth at that point and calls up to himself everyone who had placed their faith in him. This includes those who had put their faith in him for their salvation, but had already physically died before that point, and it includes all those who had put their faith in him for their salvation, but are still alive at that point. In fact, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, when Paul describes this event, known as the rapture, more clearly in his letter to the Thessalonians, he describes that Jesus will bring with him the souls of all those who had put their faith in him and had died prior to that point. So especially during this heartbreaking time of so much death in our country and in personal connection to our church family, we have this promise of assurance. Paul says, says elsewhere that when our souls are no longer in our bodies, we are immediately present with the Lord. There is no middle ground. So when believers in Jesus die, their souls immediately enter the presence of our Lord, where they are cared for until this, this point in the future time known as the rapture. At that point, Paul tells the Thessalonians, Jesus will descend out of heaven with a shout and a trumpet blast, and all of us believers in Jesus, both dead and alive at that point, will be caught up to join him in the clouds. Jesus will reunite the souls of his children with their resurrected bodies, and whether previously dead or still alive, we will all get completely transformed bodies and minds. These bodies will not be capable of sickness, pain, decay, or death, and will last for all of eternity. But this event known as the rapture, as Paul says the to the Corinthians will happen in the blink of an eye. No one who isn't being caught up to be united with Jesus and reunited with loved ones will see it. 
To them, as Jesus described in the two verses preceding our verses this morning, people will have simply vanished. Two guys will be working together, one will turn to the other, and they'll just be gone. Two women will be working together, one will turn to the other, and the other one will just be gone. In addition, as Jesus points out in verse 39, those not raptured will not even understand what had happened all the way up to the following tribulational judgments coming and sweeping and destroying them all away. There will be all sorts of conspiracy theories flying around, from a mysterious illness that simply makes people vanish, to a government conspiracy, to an alien abduction. Any crazy idea will be put forth, but very few will remember things they had heard in sermons before about Jesus rapturing up his church. And out of all of this chaos, a global leader will emerge that most of the world's remaining population will place their trust in, not realizing he's actually the Antichrist. Like I mentioned last week, as we've seen all these crazy things happening in connection with this current pandemic, and we never thought any of this would happen, none of this seems as far-fetched as it may have once been. Jesus emphasizes the surprise factor of his rapture event by noting how things will be in the world prior to that point. Will there be anything leading up to it? No, not at all. In fact, every prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back for his church has already been fulfilled. Even to the point that the Apostle Paul thought it was a very real possibility Jesus could come back in his lifetime, 2,000 years ago. Everything in the world will simply be life as normal until no, with nothing out of the ordinary until suddenly it's not. All the way up to Jesus coming down out of heaven. And from that environment of everything seeming perfectly normal, as it had been for thousands of years, suddenly, out of nowhere, everything will be complete chaos. And it will be too late for anyone who hadn't placed their, their trust in Jesus for their salvation before that point, before they're destroyed by the coming tribulational judgments. That's the dire warning to everyone who has yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation from sin. You have no clue how much time you have left on earth to continue playing around with your eternal fate, whether by way of physical death or by way of Jesus' rapture of his church. If you have not made that decision yet, do it right now or it may be too late. But to those of us who will be raptured, because we have realized the undeniable fact that we're sinners in need of someone else to rescue us and have accepted Jesus as that rescuer and are living the rest of our lives to please him, there's another warning for us. That warning is in these two parables we're looking at this morning. I wanted to set all of that up as a bit of a review and so anyone who wasn't, who wasn't here last week didn't have any clue as to what I was talking about before I jumped into these parables. So with all that laid out and fresh again in our minds as to the context of Jesus giving these parables, let's read the first one. 
If you brought your Bible, would you please turn to Matthew 24? Uh, we'll be picking up in verse 42. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please turn there, or you can look it up on your smartphone. Matthew 24, starting in verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Again, as we reviewed this coming of the Lord that this verse is referencing is the partial return of Jesus, known as the rapture, the first event to initiate all the rest of the end times events, including his full second coming to earth. And similar to last week's passage, this one is also bookended by a similar sounding verse. Verse 44, jump ahead with me real quick. For this reason, you, may, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Now, both of these verses taken together give us as believers this clear warning. Jesus will be coming back for us at a time when we don't think he will return. And therefore, we must always be on the alert. To drive that point home, Jesus gives this illustration in between that, verse 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Now, when we may have read this in the past, or just do a cursory reading of this now, it seems like Jesus is talking to unbelievers here. In other words, that Jesus is saying to unbelievers, watch out, because Jesus' return will be as surprising as a thief breaking into your house. You should be on the alert and have gotten your life right with Jesus before he returns. But in connection with the second parable, which this parable clearly is, this is actually directed at believers in Jesus. For what purpose? To drive home the point that we must be on the alert at all times. As noted by one biblical scholar, this is referencing the night watches in, 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 overnight, over the nighttime, which in a time of no security alarms or cameras or even a local police precinct was how wealthy people protected their belongings. They would set up their servants to take different watches of the night and keep an eye out for would-be thieves, especially if the head of the household knew during which one of those neat night watches a thief would try to break in, he'd make sure his servants were on full alert, who, which one was on that watch. If he didn't know, which was usually the case, the servants may nod off and allow the thief to skirt right past them. In this parable, Jesus is basically telling the head of the household to keep his servants always on full alert. Because like Jesus' return, there will be no warning. Just as thieves don't announce their coming by knocking on the front door and letting the homeowner, a homeowner know they'll be arriving later that night, Jesus' return for his church will be just as without warning. Just like with those who hadn't put their trust in Jesus before his return, won't be able to see what's going on and say a quick prayer in that moment to get themselves raptured up too because it will happen in the blink of an eye, there's a similar warning to us believers here too. 
unlike that joke, Jesus is coming, look busy, we won't be able to gauge his return and start doing what we know we should have been doing all the time. Instead, as Jesus says here, we should always be on the alert with the way that we live our lives. We should always be living as if Jesus could return at any moment. Because in reality, that's the absolute case. The entire point of Jesus' first parable here is to establish the fact that we as believers must always be living as if Jesus could return at any moment. The entire point is to establish that we must always be on the alert, but with the way that we live our lives. But what is this being on alert supposed to look like? I could be on alert and only be standing out on my sidewalk and looking up at the sky waiting for Jesus to come back for the rest of my life. I could refuse to eat anything or do anything and think, because what's the use, and wear a t-shirt that says I'm ready and spray a message on my roof that says Jesus stop here like he's Santa Claus. But that's obviously not what Jesus means when he says be on the alert. So what does it mean? That's the question that Jesus answers in this second parable. In verse 45, he says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Again, as I've mentioned time and time again, this word for slave is not used in the same way that the word has been used to describe a person who has been forcibly stripped of all of their basic human rights. That is not what this word is used for here at all. Especially in Jesus' day and context, when an impoverished person had so much debt owed to another person and could not pay it, they would serve that person in their household for a set period of time, and then they were to be released with all of their debt erased according to Jewish law. These people were known as bond servants, a servant serving because of indebtedness. And that's the same understanding that prompts the Apostle Paul to use the same term to describe himself, a servant of Jesus because of indebtedness to Jesus for him paying his overwhelming sin debt on his behalf. This servant in this parable may also have been an individual who was hired by the head of the household. Either way, the person described here had basic human rights. And that's what I want to be very clear about before we move forward. In this story, the head of the household puts this particular servant in charge of his household while he goes away temporarily. In this story, the master is obviously Jesus, who has gone away temporarily, but for a very good reason. He's not gone off to abandon us. He's gone off to another country to prepare our heavenly homes for us and to intercede for us before the great throne of the Father. And in his stead, the master has placed his servant over his household. Without reading too much into this, other than the master being Jesus, he's directing this to all of his servants, a.k.a., as pointed out by one biblical scholar, everyone who has trusted him as their savior and king. In other words, this warning is not only limited to church leaders, as some have interpreted, but to everyone who calls Jesus the master of their lives. 
how then are we all to live as faithful, sensible servants who remain on the alert? Jesus answers that question in verse 45 and in verse 46. We are to listen to his, his instructions on caring for one another as fellow servants in doing what we should be doing in our daily tasks for the master's household. And then do what? Verse 46. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So then do what? Actually do it. Not only listen to the master's instruction for what we should be doing while he's away, but then actually do it. Actually caring for one another as fellow servants and actually doing what we should be doing in our daily tasks for the kingdom. And not stopping nor giving up. Why? Because the master can return at any moment. He can come back home at any moment. And what then will the master do for those servants of his who actually did what he said and did them faithfully and wisely? Verse 47, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Now Jesus will expand on that in a couple of parables from now about the three different servants entrusted with three different amounts of money to do something with. But for now, he's just establishing the truth that there will be a great reward for those servants who faithfully served him and his household in his absence when he returns. That's what he's establishing here. We talked about this truth not too long ago, maybe about a month at this point. Obviously, we will gain our eternity with Jesus when he returns, and that is a priceless treasure in and of itself. But God makes several promises in the New Testament about a special kind of reward he will give out based on how much we live and do for him in this life. The Bible doesn't go into too much detail about what that reward is, but the very anticipation of any kind of rewarding blessing being given out by God himself will be worth the wait and be worth the work. Again, this reward has nothing to do with our salvation. That is won by faith in Jesus and faith alone. But good works born out of that faith will earn us this above and beyond kind of heavenly reward when Jesus comes back. In connection with the first parable, however, when Jesus' return may mean great heavenly reward for one person, it might mean great loss for another person, like a thief breaking into a house. Jesus' return may be like a thief breaking into, into a house and stealing all the items of any worth. The Apostle Paul describes this experience by us as believers following the rapture as everything we've done in this life passing through a fire. Everything that was not done for Jesus and only for ourselves will be burned up. And as Paul says, there will be people who will have everything burned up and they will only have their basic salvation that saves them. Everything that we do in this life that is only for Jesus and not for ourselves will pass through the fire and be like incorruptible precious stones and jewels. 
This is exactly what Jesus is referencing when he says earlier on in this gospel, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. That's exactly what he's referencing right here. What this most certainly does not look like in the extreme pendulum swing to self-centeredness and pride is this, verses 48 through 51. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This paints a very grim picture for those who refuse to believe that Jesus will come back at all and therefore abuse other people and get plastered all the time with others who don't care about God at all. But wait a second. Why does Jesus say that this servant will suffer the same fate as unbelievers? Eternal physical and emotional torment captured by the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does this mean that someone who lives like this could lose their salvation? No. This is not referencing anyone losing their salvation, but what it is referencing is that person taking a very hard look at their life and questioning whether or not they're one of Jesus' servants in the first place, if they've ever been one of Jesus' servants. The questioning comes from the fact that none of Jesus' servants should be perpetually living this way without regard for their fellow human beings, nor Jesus' imminent return. Let me ask you this. Is this the first time we've seen this phrase before? People sentenced to a place of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. No. We've seen this quite a few times. And in every single instance, who are the people banished to this eternity? Other than those who completely rejected the gospel. Those who only pretended to be Christians. You can look this up. Every other parable, Jesus uses this reference at the end of it's to reference those who pretended to be Christians without ever asking Jesus for forgiveness of their sin and who think they deserve to make it into heaven on their own merit. Once again, this is a powerfully grim reminder to all those who think that as long as they look like a Christian or look even just like a generally good person, that that's enough to escape the fires of hell. In connection with this parable, this is especially poignant for those who pretend to be Christians and might even think they are Christians, but don't actually believe the Bible to be God's word, much less Jesus will ever come back. And so they use that as, as an excuse to lead a blatantly disobedient life. This is a clear warning. Either one of those outlooks on life lead to the same place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same exact place. 
Scripture, and even Jesus, contrary to popular belief, is very clear about the only basis to heaven. That basis is only coming to grips with your own sinfulness, knowing that it separates you from God, and knowing you're powerless on your own to do anything about it. That basis is knowing we all deserve banishment to this place of darkness and torment called hell. That basis is accepting that God and his love provided a way of escape from that by paying the price of death for our sin on our behalf on the cross. That basis is taking that for yourself, asking Jesus for forgiveness of your sin and making him the king of the rest of your life. That's it. That's it. That's the only basis. Substituting anything else in place of that, even perceived inherent goodness, will not work. Thinking simply believing in God will not work. There is only one way, and that's through Jesus' forgiveness of your sin. Like I've mentioned time and time again, agnosticism is a mirage. It's not a legitimate religious label. All of that is, is an attempt to prolong the inevitable. If you don't make a decision about making Jesus your Savior and King before you die, which none of us has a time frame for, or before Jesus comes back, which none of us has a time, for, time frame for, it's too late. Your fate will be the same as someone who continuously rejects the good news of salvation found only in Jesus. The main warning here in these parables, however, is to believers. We must be on the alert. But that alertness must be us serving Jesus and doing the work he has for us to do, knowing he could return at any moment. Being on the alert does not mean just maybe coming to church on a Sunday if we feel like it. Being on the alert means every day doing the work Jesus has for us to do, what he's called for us to do, living the way he wants us to live, always being on the alert, knowing he could return at any moment for us. He could return at any moment. And as Jesus is very pointed about in these parables, is that there's additional reward for simply just doing that. Heavenly reward doled out by Jesus himself. Don't let everything you've done on this earth get burned up and you just be left with a pile of ashes in your hands. As Jesus said, prove yourself a faithful servant by doing the work he has for you to do and caring for your fellow servants while you still have breath, while you still have time on this earth. And when he returns, we can look forward to seeing what above and beyond an unimaginable heavenly reward he will bestow upon us. Never underestimate how much God will reward you for simply following him and doing what he wants you to be doing and living the way he wants you to be living. Let us all leave this place different people than when we walked in. Let us all leave this place changed people. Jesus is coming back. It could be 
at any moment. Don't be left surprised. Be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful illustrations and parables you give in Matthew 24 to describe the surprise and shock factor of your rapture for us, to be directed to us. Lord, I pray that we would take what precious time we have left on this earth, having no clue when you'll be returning, and using it to live the lives you want us to live and do the work you have for us to do. Lord, I pray that this would be a, a call to inspiration, a, a call to be emboldened, to go forth. As this crisis has, showed, has shown to us, the days truly are few. The days are numbered. Lord, let us take advantage of every single day you've given to us and live the life you call us to live in line with your standards, being that example to those who are watching us and bring one more person into the kingdom through sharing your good news of salvation with them. You've given that great commission to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray we would go out, therefore, and do it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.